Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we are picking up on Chapter 31. And just a quick recap, we have Parzival stuck at IOI, and he is planning his escape because he has recently realized that his friends are in mortal danger. And he has to quickly put together a plan to get out and contact his friends. And that's really what this chapter boils down to. We're talking about a sum total of five or six pages where we go from one location to another location with a little bit of travel in between. Putting that into perspective, in comparison to Chapter 30, it's it's not a lot to work with. When we talk about references here and a lot of inspirational stuff, if this is not one of those chapters where there is a ton of references. But there are some nuggets that we want to drill into. Some nuggets, but it's mostly a how to get from A to B chapter. It is. And there are a few chapters like that, that, that surprisingly, once we get sort of digging into it, we uncover a few things. But this is going to be one of those point A to point B chapters. Still a good chapter. Still a good chapter. Still a little bit of suspense there. There are a few things that Ernest kind of digs at, kind of highlight how you're going to get out of that. Like he's in the situation where he is now, where he's stuck in IOI as an indentured servant. And how are you going to make it out the door? How are you going to get the shackles off? How are you going to get the ear tag off? Every time I think one of those ear tags, I think one of those giant metal ear tags they stick on cows, right? So how much of this could he have really planned ahead for prior to being indentured? We don't know exactly how much he knew about the ear gear, the anklet thing. Yeah. So some of this stuff, he really kind of had to figure out, most likely while he was there. Right. And I have to think that it is a matter of like those little elements are kind of like story inconveniences that he has to get around. But the challenges of figuring out how to get around those things are not quite like the puzzle solving. Like I never felt like in this chapter, we were trying to figure out how to get past these things. You know, this wasn't a chapter like, for example, in The Martian, where every chapter in The Martian, or hell, nearly every few pages, it was, I ran into a problem. I had no idea how to deal with it, and then I scienced the shit out of it. I never really, at this point, I never felt like we'd run into that. I felt like we were running into a thing where it was like, I ran into this problem. Oh, and I had already had a way to deal with it. For me, this goes back to some of our previous discussions about stories that involve magic. Because when you're talking about everything being coming out of a piece of technology, everything's hackable. So your ability to hack is your ability to perform magic. So in some ways, it's like you were never really worried about it because, oh, he has this problem. Well, I'm going to hack my way out of it. Yes. Ha- in, in this situation, hack is, is like magic. Or I'm going to pull out some passwords, which is like the magic phrases. Like, I, I knew this incantation that I went zippity-doo-dah and Pharaoh made it happen. Yes, hacking hacking is like the equivalent of magic in a number of other books. And I would far prefer chapters where when there is a problem, you're... The character has to be challenged to get through them, 
and that you as the reader are kind of along for the ride and trying to help the character imagine how to get past this. And hacking is just a shortcut to, to I solved that problem. Pretty much. And I feel like there's a lot of that in this chapter and in the past few chapters. Agreed. In this book, you never feel like the character's leveraging his knowledge or trying to solve the problem. Like That's the coolest part about this book is you're working the problem with the character. And I don't feel like in these chapters where he's dealing with IOI and he's coming up with these things he couldn't have known about, really— or, or maybe he did, but he didn't. Wouldn't have known enough detail about it, you know, like the anklet and the ear thing. That that he came up with these problems, and then the solutions were just like I did that thing. Is uh, is real? It's it, it. He could have gone further into it with this. I guess is the gist. I would have preferred a little salt problem solving with the author. I've read some books that were really deeply rooted in the in hacking or dark net type stuff. And clearly the author did his research or maybe perhaps knew on his own or knows somebody that was able to give him some information and background so that he could write about it with authority that made it sound believable. That's, I guess, my criticism of Parzival's hacking that we're aware of is that it's kind of like, oh, and then I hacked it and it, it turned out the way I wanted, as opposed to... Well, first I changed this line of code to this and I rerouted the subroutine here and there. It's like, well, I mean, I don't know what that means, but it sure as hell sounds like it could be hacking. I mean, I don't know. In some ways, we're we're just not given the full picture. And I kind of want to see that picture just so I can believe it more. Yeah. The hard part about describing hacking or, or any kind of programming effort is that it is boring. That there's just there's just no way to elaborate that without getting technical, without potentially kind of going over the heads of the people reading it. I would have preferred some sort of social hacking, something where uh, the social engineering stuff. Yeah, but yeah, well, yeah, the social engineering. Where you know you have to make a phone call to the desk and say I'm I'm this guy on this level and I need this thing. Something along those lines. That that would be that that is least... actually a lot of fun to read. Yeah, that is a bit more entertaining. I'm going to go back to the book that Ryan was recommending a couple of times, The Ghost in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick. He mm -hmm. goes into great details through these conversations that he would have with people to social engineer his way into getting information. And it was just like, is this some type of spy novel or something? Because it's just like, God damn, I wish I had those skills. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, a, bit like, it's a bit like reading a book where you have a maze to get through. But then the way to shortcut the maze is to say, I have a map. So I have a maze. Oh, okay, cool. So this will be fun. Oh, I've got a map. Oh, okay. So no, not so much fun. <laughs> it's, it's just as a map. I have a problem and I solved it with map. But anyhow, let's, let's start off the chapter really fast. So we are starting with him working for hours, basically copying all of the data possible from the Sixer database onto the drives that he conveniently had ordered and delivered to himself as Bryce, the indentured servant. On top of that, while, while moving that data across, he submits a form, like the many forms that you have. It, it, and I'll be honest with you, like at, at my job, I'm, I'd be fortunate to find some of the forms that I want for what, you know, what I might need. Like there's so many different types of forms you can fill out that he was able to actually find the right form to get what he wants. It's interesting. Don't you just search it up in a database or something like that? You'd freaking think so, right? Yeah. Um, no, not that easy sometimes. Do you, do you have to crawl your way through a labyrinth of folders to try to find the right form? No, usually it's a website where you type in a search and then 
that doesn't return back what you're looking for at all. Sounds like most websites I ever go yep. to. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But he submits an executive oologist supply requisition order. And it's a, it's a form that Sixer commanders use to request weapons and equipment inside the Oasis. And he had this very specific piece of equipment that he requested to be dropped off on noon two days from that point, which is Ooh. kind of presumptuous. Isn't it? I'm going to get that dropped off, but... You know, he may or may not be there for that to happen. Clearly, what he's doing is something to do with his plan, obviously, his grand plan. So he's presuming that, you know, he's been there for eight days, and he's this is two more days for the Sixers to not open the third gate. Yeah, and clear the challenge. Right. Yeah. He really has no confidence in IOI at this point. I mean, I guess at this point, if they haven't figured it out, how likely are they to do that? quickly well and i guess the real question is how would he know yeah you know it doesn't matter because if they've got shields and tons of people in there now it's just a matter of time they could take all the time they want they could take years trying different combinations at some point they'll figure it out a question that would be interesting to ponder is it possible that they could have finished the contest and him not know how is it possible for them to finish the contest and him not know during his regular duties Mm -hmm. he's not a sixer as an indentured servant I, I've got to imagine that there'd be a big party at IOI. Maybe, or that there, yeah, there, there would be like a huge announcement, something along the lines of that. The only way he could find out is if there was something in the stuff he was looking for. I would think. Maybe. Well, I mean, if he's answering phone, the phone, I mean, so we say the phone, but let's say the virtual phone, right? He's, he's picking up the, the line for people that are calling in. I would imagine that even in just people talking to them, he would. He would discover a distinct change. So like Hawkhawk 007 calls back and says, yo, man, I bought this sword and I don't really need it anymore because the contest is over. Yeah, something along those lines, right. Why the fuck do I need that sword for? Because I'm not going to be fighting my way to the egg now. Something along those lines. You know, like, like there would be a wave of announcement and changes within the business. Because think about all of the organization and how much of it is built around hunting for the egg. So the oology department is this gargantuous army of employees, right? And if they had the egg, guess what they don't need anymore? The oology department. True. Everybody can, they can lay everyone off. Now they might not even need their indentured servants. You get that, that there would be a huge change in the business if the, if the egg had been found. Yeah, well, I mean, and... The world economy. I think it would be hard to miss, even if you were an indentured servant. Given the fact that he's submitted this form, and it does not specify exactly what kind of weapon that he ordered up, what were you thinking when you reached this point in the book that he could possibly have been, you know, ordering up? Uh, what was I he sending re- this form for? I have to really think back to like what I. I'm not even sure. I tried to ponder it at that point because I was just like, I got to keep going, got to keep going, got to keep going because I want to know what goes on. Because at this point, we are so close to the end of the book that I was just too excited and anxious to keep going. Mm. That was one of, the, one of those bookmark in the back of your brain. Oh, he did that thing. And we'll remember that later. Yeah. And like, obviously, you know that it's something to do with some big plan. And I was like, well, I'm going to keep reading and find out what that plan is. I'm not going to sit here and think about it. Right. When I do try to think about those things, it's a distraction. I just want to get to the story sometimes. Totally get that. I think in my mind, I was thinking here that he was going to leave himself something. Like, was there a piece of equipment that he could use, that he could have delivered to a spot, that when it came time, he could go and pick up that weapon 
and then use it against the Sixer army, which you got to think to yourself, you know, okay, well, what, what weapon could that possibly be? So I was thinking, I don't know, like a tank or, or maybe something rare in, in their army, in their, in their military force. An artifact of some sort. Sure. Yeah, maybe. I mean, this is a weapons and equipment requisition form. So it's, it's kind of hard to say because for all I know, he had the Millennium Falcon ordered up for a quick escape when the army is on his tail after he grabbed the egg. I don't know. Maybe it's a gigantic bastard sword. That could be Warpock 007 on this side of it. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. I'm not sure what I was thinking at this point either. I thought he was going to maybe order himself up something that he could leave for himself in the future that he'd be like, oh, I'm glad that I did that thing and put that thing there because I knew I was going to need it when I left in a hurry. Like a Big Mac. Not like a Big Mac. No. (laughs) He could be hungry. I'm really... I'm really glad I stuck that Big Mac in that one place. Hey, that could be considered a weapon in some countries. Ah, bless. I thought that the interesting thing here was that now he has the data put on these these stolen flash drives. He's unlocked his ear gear and his security anklet. One of the reasons why I like this chapter is because you do feel that sort of nakedness that if he gets caught, it's all going to be found out. Like there's just one of those. I mean, he puts it, he had passed the point of no return. Sure has. He's, uh, yeah, that's some heavy shit. But he thought of it. He, you know, as soon as he turned off, you know, which means the vid feed isn't on. It means that no one's able to monitor him. Uh, in my mind, that seems odd, but I get it. Like people who, it, they would have thousands of vid feed monitors to look after. Oh, so I mean, like just with, I mean, without his ear gear and all that stuff, there, there's still be cameras that show him, quote unquote, alive. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of that if all of a sudden somebody's vid feed turned off and you are IOI security, that I don't know if it would be a situation where it would be easy to to notice that it had turned off or if the system would go, hey, that, that guy's vid feed just turned off for no particularly good reason. He just said that the ear gear came off, but the, the feed is still being fed from the archive footage from when he was first indentured. No, no, I was going off of the fact his ear gear is the video feed. So when the ear gear comes off, his video feed is shut off. Perhaps. Well, or or I find it's a video feed of the ear gear laying on the ground. Remember, he hacked his ear gear feed so that it was showing him sleeping. True. Right, right, right. So at at what point do you think he got caught with it? Like, I mean, this really doesn't kind of say it. It it shoots. I'm not shooting, trying to shoot too far ahead. It does get to a place where later in the chapter, it indicates that that they had they'd figured it out. Like they had yeah. already put out sort of the warrant, if you will, the the wanted poster of him. But but now that we're at that place where he's sort of taken off his equipment and he's really like a beyond point of no return situation. From for now that the clock is ticking and there has to be a way for him to have gotten caught that would make sense. I thought about this as well. I think probably one of the red flags had to have been. When someone who is sleeping in their hab unit has to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. but they don't even move. Think about it. If you have all these IOI guys keeping an eye on things, and then somebody who appears to be sleeping says, I need to use the bathroom, the door to their hab unit opens, but the video shows him sleeping, I think that's a okay. red flag. All right. That's interesting. That's interesting. Or how about that you're only given a certain amount of time to use the restroom? That would be another uh, possibility because he wouldn't have come back in the whatever number of minutes it would take to take a shit. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you only have like, you know, 10 minutes to do your thing. And then it it realized you didn't come back to your hab. And after not coming back to your hab, after however much time, then an alert would be sounded of some sort. 
that would be that would be the most obvious reason for him to get caught. If it, if it's not for the fact that the feeds in his earpiece are no longer attached to his head, then I could see that. Any other ways you think he might have been known in such a short period of time? Other than perhaps not showing up for his shift, which I'm, yeah. I don't remember quite the timing now. but I don't remember anywhere in there where it said that he was due for his shift. We knew it was coming up shortly, like in the next mm-hmm. few hours, but we don't know if, how, if at one point, like by the time that he actually walked side of the building if that would have been when the shift would have started no i get you i get you okay yeah i can see that because the, the book does carry on for what could be a few hours could be yeah, yeah, yeah so part of the clever and ingenious means for him to get out is that he orders up ma- maintenance tech outfit with the name harry tuttle which is robert de Niro's character in, in the movie brazil yeah Still haven't seen that though. I've not seen it either. I've not heard anything about it. So when I, you know, did a little bit of research, what it came up with was kind of this, this again, sort of dystopian movie. It's kind of a theme here, and that it was a not per se a direct sequel, but kind of a carry on from the Time Bandits movie, which I had seen, uh, and in and in some reviews saying that it was you know the best movie of the eighties, which the best movie of the (laughs) eighties. Best movie. Hold on a minute. Like, it's, it's I, I, I get it because there was this huge problem with Universal releasing this movie because Universal, A, wanted the movie shorter and B, did not want a sad ending. So he cut 11 minutes out of this movie down to 100, 131 minutes. And rather than fading to black, it fades to, fades to puffy white clouds and, and, and a, you know, sort of a blue sky. Aww. That's it. That's all he does. And Universal releases the movie. For that director, they say it became his seminal work and, quote, many critics regarded it at the time as the best film of the 80s. Mind you, it released in early 1985. So maybe it was buried under all of the other great movies that followed. So this is pre-Ghostbusters and pre-really a lot of shit in the 80s. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, how do you compete? (laughs) I'd never heard of this movie. So we're going to have to put this on our list of follow-ups of movies to watch. It's actually kind of interesting to me because one of the reviewers says that it was heavily influenced by George Orwell's 1984. Mm-hmm. This one particular reviewer said that the Brazil is the closest thing to a perfect adaptation of 1984 for the big screen. I do very much enjoy that novel, 1984. So mm-hmm. I'm actually very interested in seeing this movie. I might have to try to read the book 1984 before that, just so that I can get it fresh in my head and uh, see what happens. So I watched the bit on YouTube where Robert De Niro, a younger Robert De Niro, I might add, is wow. playing Harry Tuttle. And he's he's like a, a maintenance man, which, you know, that makes sense given what the direction of the book was going for. But it's like this maintenance man who is kind of cutting past the red tape. So he's doing it in a... In sort of this covert black ops kind of way where he's going in and repairing companies without having to fill out any forms. It's almost like sneaking in to fix a company, to, to fix like an air conditioning unit or their heating system. Or maybe restart routers and things like that at IOI. Yeah, just kind of goofy. This is sort of a mix of character. When I saw it, I was like, okay, this is a little unusual. So we'll have to check out the movie and we'll have to go through it and and put out potentially another episode just covering this movie. But for the most part, this is probably the the single, I guess, biggest reference to any 80s material, to any pop culture material whatsoever in this particular chapter. 
I mean, this is this is kind of the hinge. Did you see anything else? Like, this is the biggie. It's this name, and there, there's another name that references the same movie. Yeah, there's there's nothing else that is not previously mentioned elsewhere. Like Bryce Lynch is, you know, that's been mentioned in previous chapters. So it is not like that's not a new reference. So I was hard pressed to find other references, at least direct other references. Yeah, I, that's kind of it. There's a few chapters within like spitting distance from this one that are the same way, that are just not very reference rich. Right, right. It's just very focused in on the story and him getting out. And speaking of which, so he throws on his maintenance worker clothes, gets in the elevator, tries to bandage his ear, and, you know, realizing that there are cameras everywhere, including in the elevator that he's in, he gives Sorrento the finger by scratching his nose with his middle finger and smiling at the camera. Oh, how awesome is that? That's that's a that's a pretty clever fuck off. Yeah, yeah. And the, the funny thing is that like this is one of those things that whenever I read this part, I have a clear vision in my head of how I thought the movie would portray that. Mm-hmm. And of course, we didn't get that. <laughs> we did not get that. Yeah, and, and the fact that the book is really from his perspective, like you, this book does not tell from any other perspective, which. Is cool because it focuses on Parzival. And in fact, the book opens with Parzival saying, this is about me. I'm telling it from my perspective. I think it would have been very cool if the book was a little bit more open to telling it from multiple perspectives. If this had been picked up, you know, if Sorrento did find this, if this was the giveaway that led to them realizing that that he was out in the open and that this would have got him caught, possibly. You want to see... George R. R. Martin rewrite the book. <laughs> Maybe with fewer characters and fewer <laughs> deaths. But yes, quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Or or at the least, you know, I think it would be neat if, you know, in future books, if it was written from and this might sound dumb and might not even, you know, if, if this was put out might even not even might not even do well, but if it was written from Sorrento's perspective. Now, follow me here. The book portrays Sorrento as an absolute asshole. And I totally agree. He's an absolute asshole. But it's a bit like Star Wars. So you've got this story about Luke. At least that's how it starts off. But later episodes are really about Darth Vader, about Anakin Skywalker, and how he, you know, comes to fathering Luke. I mean, not in a father sort of way, but at least being the baby daddy, right? That's nice. Yeah, yeah, right? I I kind of do want that story. Like, I would like to hear that perspective. And there's that opportunity for a person who is good to go through and become bad and then potentially come out the end a better person, maybe, or or at least some sort of redemption, if you will, where you kind of sympathize with the bad guy, even though he's still a fucking asshole. Well, I mean, you kind of get a little bit of that with the Andy Weir fanfic. And you do. And that's why I was kind of interested in that. Like, you understand a better perspective when you read that, and there's some degree of sympathy. What I'm saying is that I, was, I would like a little bit of expansion there okay. into, into that world to say if that were there was a full-blown story, then we could see the other side of this coin, which is him, you know, somebody bringing him, you know, we, you know our systems realize that this in, you know, indentured servant is in the wrong place, you know, and that it was unusual he was taking this elevator, like the system would have some sort of visual face recognition to say, hey, you know, where's that person? You know, why is he in this elevator? And then, you know, bring it to his attention, like something strange bubbled up. And it was Parzival basically giving him the finger and smiling. And that shit was happening in the background, rushing behind him. 
unbeknownst to him, to, to catch him, to snag him just before he walks out the door. That's why I would have loved to have seen that portrayed in the film because from what we know of the book, we, we just don't have that other perspective. They could have been right behind him and he could have just yeah. been turning the corner when they came around with their with their rifles and all that saying like, where's the guy? Where's the guy? And then they start following the 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 drops of blood and stuff. You know, it, it could have been a really cool scene. Yep. They, they bump into that girl and she spins around. What did you see somebody come through here that was dressed? Yeah, it was going that way. You know, it's it, it basically, she stalls them like she stalled Parzival just long enough for him to get into the cab. Just as soon as the cab's pulling away, they flood the outside with guns with Sorrento in the lead. Right. And then they just look around and he's disappeared just moments later. Like that would have been, that could have been fucking fantastic, but I get it. You can't tell that kind of story from here because you can't give that perspective because that's not something Parzival might would have been privy to when he was just walking out the door unless he knew he was being chased, unless he could hear it sort of coming from behind him. But that's not how the story was was written out. So there's a suspense that he would get caught, but he made it out the door and you're like, whew, that, you know, that was easy. Almost too easy. That's the drawback to first person novels. It, it is. It is. And that's okay. And that was one of the things that, again, I'll reference back to The Martian, because I, I think that Ready Player One and The Martian are are kind of in the same realm, not, not, not realm in, as far as ethos or even universe, but the same kind of interesting dig into a, a level of geekdom and a level of sort of nerdy detail. They're, ki- they're kindred spirits. Let, let me put it this way. If, 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 we could, if we could classify nerd and geek, I would say that the Martian is more nerd. It's definitely down to the scientific details, but still very entertaining. Whereas Ready Player One is, is more geek. It is more pop culture, more fandom. It is more the love of the material and the love of that period of time and the love of the stuff that came out of that period of time. That is a fair assessment. And I would like to add, I read these two books in not that far off from each other. So right. I read Same them here. in a period of time where it was a short period of time. So there's like a relationship between those two books for me that uh, it was also a period of time where I was reading a lot more books, but like those two in that time frame really stuck out to me as just mind blowing examples of, they were so, they got me, you know? Right. And right. At, at a time where books never got me, like they never hooked me the way those two books did. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's, I think those are like quintessential nerd and geek books in and about the best delivery as I've ever read, you know, nerd or geek content, right? If you could put either into their own category. So you've got horror and then you've got nerd and you've got geek and then adventure. (laughs) So in comparing it to The Martian, there was a point in The Martian where it goes from Mark Watney sort of writing as a diary to then back to NASA. And then when you get to the point where you start reading about, you know, the NASA scientists and administration reflecting and realizing what's happened, you know, you you reach that point in the book where you're like, oh, shit, we just stepped out of Mark Watney's life and into a different perspective. I immediately kind of had this panic of like, oh, crap, something bad happened. Like maybe that's the end of his diary. And then, of course, they shift back later on. But you don't know it at first. You just know that they've shifted to the perspective of NASA. So I, I, I really liked that that jarring shift that was made at that point in the book, which was pretty, I felt like pretty deep in the book. 
that wouldn't have worked for this book because the book starts out with this is my story. So you don't you don't have that ability to shift in perspective. But I would really, as a result, like to see another book that shows it from a different angle. Going back to an earlier comment we were discussing and the lack of detail and how things were accomplished with like the hacking or whatever, comparing it to the excessive detail that the Martian used to describe mm-hmm. every little thing. Like you know, we don't need it. We're not going to get into that necessarily right now, but he, he goes down to like a, such a uber scientific level of detail of why mm-hmm. problems occurred. And, and it really added to the story. Right. It was almost another character. Well, every chapter was problem solving. And to hear the author describe what he was really going for was he was saying, what's, what are the worst things that could happen on Mars that you could get out of? What problems would you face and what were the worst situations that could happen that, you, that still wouldn't kill you? And Andy Weir was like, well, you couldn't have the oxygenator go out you'd suffocate. There's no way to get around that. If that's broke, you're fucked. You couldn't have the water reclaimer go out. If that broke, you're fucked. So those are the two things that were kind of sacred in the story. Those things had to work nearly all the time. And then the rest of the story was about, you know, how do we make food? And how do we get more water? And how do we get to that one place? And, you know, what other resources are available? So it was really Every set of chapters was like problem solving with story tying it all together. And that's one of the things that I liked about this book, too, about Ready Player One, is that it is a story. It is a problem solving book that uses pop culture references to solve problems. And it's just during these these past few chapters, there was a lot of opportunity to solve problems that were just shortcutted. Yeah. And we're trying to jump to that place where he got out and then we're going to move on to the big thing. So this, this, all of this feels a little bit rushed, uh, and I feel like it was a missed opportunity for presenting unknown problems that came up and clever ways that he might have pulled from his repertoire of 80s and 90s culture references to create the solution. And I don't know, we just, just didn't get it from this. And, and this chapter being an example of that, because it's like, what, five pages long? Something like that. Yeah, it's not long. It's just him going from point A to point B, but this should be like a huge critical chapter. From a writing perspective, this is him breaking out, right? This is every scene where the down and out and Han Solo-esque cowboy uses that stick of dynamite that he had somehow smuggled in in a cigar (laughs) to blow a hole in the wall to get out of the jail. Some shit like that. I always find this part of the book really exciting, even though it kind of glazes over a few details of how he does it. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those chapters where the vision is just so clear in my head as to what's going down and when he's in his hab unit and how he gets out of it and he was in the elevator and he walks out of the elevator and he's in that lobby full of people. Like I have such strong visions of what it looks like. And it's, I don't know, I really enjoy it. I like this part of the book a lot. And from here on out, it just keeps on. Keeps cranking. Yeah, it, it it's full steam ahead. It's great. Yeah, no, no, I agree. This is a pretty cool chapter for that. So part of Parzal makes it out in his squeaky slippers. When I imagine his outfit, the slippers remind me of of Crocs. <laughs> like I, I imagine that is what he's, that's what he's fucking wearing. And if anyone likes Crocs in there, I know I've heard that they're very comfortable. I think they are, they, they look like, 
the ugliest fucking canoe shoes that you could possibly wear. Like, this is like, how do we create functionality and comfort and just say fuck off to style? <laughs> Those don't look comfortable to me. <laughs> I do. They're just they're like there's foam rubber. It's, it's you're just walking on, you know, it's, everyone I've talked to say that they're crazy comfortable. But, but still, when I imagined him sort of walking in these squeaky shoes, I'm imagining him wearing these unusual, ugly Crocs. If you work for Croc or you love your Crocs, I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying from a style perspective, I, I think they're dastardly looking. Last year, I did a lot of house hunting and some houses had Crocs. They have the boxes full of those little slippers to put on so you don't trek anything into the house. Yeah, but those don't make squeaky noises. They don't make squeaky noises, but that's what I kind of picture. Oh, okay. 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 I get what you're saying. Yeah. I guess here, here's the question. Were they slippers like that or were they more like crappy bathroom slippers like you get at a hotel i don't know i just imagined crocs particularly when it said that he was making the squeaking noise do crocs make us sleep? they're kind of like rubbery so if you were walking across like a marble floor yeah i'm sure they would squeak well i'm not sure but i would imagine that's that's just what i imagined when he was talking about when he focused in on them but yeah so he makes it out the door calls for a cab which which uh picks him up of course he's very selective about the cab that he uses before we get there Oh, yeah? That part where the very obvious thing where he's about to go out the door and then gets hand on his shoulder and it's like, sir, sir, your ear's bleeding. Your ear's bleeding. Yeah, I, I think he threw that in there. I think that was when I first started breaking into that, it was like, oh, shit. But then it quickly resolved into a, oh, somebody just told me about my ear. Okay, great. And then boom, right out the door. So that was that was a neat toss in plot wise. A, t- a quick moment of suspension. I feel like that was the screenwriter in Ernest Klein coming out mm-hmm. because I feel like that particular scene was written almost like it could have been very quickly adapted for the screen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, there was definitely a moment of suspension. There was a that was a a neat and clever sort of tense moment, and then of course with the bandaid having come off and then he's kind of bleeding from his ear because he can't come up with an excuse as for why his ear is bleeding. So he just kind of says thanks and leaves. Could you come up with a reason why your ear was gushing blood? No, but I could see somebody going, oh my gosh, your ear's bleeding. Hey, let's come over to the front desk and let's give you a bait. Let's get you a bandaid. I'm sure they've got one, you know, in the first aid kit behind the front desk, right? With the security guards at the front desk or whomever is there, right? That trying to urge you to come back in and put something on your ear like he's trying to get out and somebody's like you know what come over here and do this and like no i've got to run no it'll just take a second like there was a moment there where i felt like more tension could be drummed up where he would be kind of potentially reeled back in due to the stupid mistake of not putting on the band-aid tight enough there was that moment where rather than it just being oh your ear is bleeding oh thanks and then he walks out the door things start to unravel or, you know, they, she pulls him over to the desk and the desk guys look at him and saying, why are you wearing those shoes? Like he was aware of the fact that he was wearing those shoes and was making him paranoid about wearing them, but it never really came down to anything. Uh, I mean, he did say that he was so worried about the squeaking, like making him stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Yeah. Like he paid itself enough attention to it. And, and then the, then the hand slaps on his shoulder and it's like, oh shit, maybe he's fucked. Yeah, but, you know, you'd think the ear bleeding bit, like your ear bleeding's a lot. Like most people would be like, oh, his ear is bleeding. I'm not going to fuck with that. But I mean, think about it. You Like you pass people in the mall every day or people going to work or whatever. If you saw somebody had a little bit of blood on their on their ear, are you going to stop? I just keep on walking, mind my own fucking business. It's a complete stranger. 
This person doesn't know you from Jack. If you got a little blood on your ear, anyone going to stop you to confront you about that? No, blood is gross, man. Yeah, like, first off, I would assume they know this. They're bleeding. They know this. You know, they got hurt, so they're aware. So, this, you know, at the very least, if you had this sort of overly friendly person that is, in a weird social way, sort of reaching out to a complete stranger that looks like a maintenance person and tapping them on the shoulder and going, hey, your ear is bleeding— You'd think that they'd be social enough to say, hey, come on over here and let's get that fixed up for you. Yeah, you know who this person sounds like? The hmm. first victim in a horror movie. <laughs> hey, let's go down into that dark that dark basement. Let's go talk to the guy who's got blood all over him. Uh, Maybe he needs help. I, I felt like there was that moment here in this chapter where more could have happened. And we, we did have a moment of tension, which I thought was cool. But then I thought, thought it was rushed, much like him rushing to get out the door. I felt like there could have been more drama, like him being drug over to the desk. And then, you know, the, a phone call happens and the security guard's like, yes, we'll keep an eye out for him. And then he's like, oh, fuck, they're talking about me. And then he t- finds a clever way to get out the door. Like there was a moment where he could have been challenged to get clever again, but he didn't. He was just like, oh, yours bleeding. Yeah, I got that. And then he walks out the door. I, I felt like this chapter was like a series of missed opportunities to do more with the content. Sure. But I think when you're reading this the first time, I don't think you care. Because I feel like your your heart's pounding enough as it is that mm-hmm. you forget that you want all those details. You just kind of want, you just kind of want more. You want to know what's next. But half of this five pages is him getting out. The next two pages is what he does next after he gets out. It's cold. He buys clothes. He gets a gun. He goes to a, a shady place. And that's two pages. Like, yeah. he could have expanded a bit. Like, I get it. I would be excited to get out, too. But at, by the time he gets out of the building, I was like, that was really too easy. There was no challenge to it whatsoever. It's magic. So somebody stopped him. Yeah, it's magic. For, but for a second, somebody stops him and his ears bleeding. He does, he's not forced to into a situation where he has to be clever. He just says, uh, yeah, or thanks, and then leaves. That situation was really his biggest challenge, was how to deal with somebody questioning him. <laughs> was somebody saying, hey, uh, you've got red on you. Because like, well, everything else was relying on his quote-unquote you know, hacking magic. But this was kind of like, on the fly, somebody is pulling you aside and saying, your ears gushing blood. What do you do? And he couldn't do anything other than say thanks. Yeah. 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 I felt like he should have been pinned more. I felt like that was an opportunity to really drill in. He gets in his ride and it takes him first off. He goes and he changes his identity up. So he is back to Wade Watts. He has tossed the persona of Bryce Lynch out the window. He is Wade Watts once again. And Wade is now taken to a clothing store of all places. And we go on for a couple paragraphs about the clothing that he picks up. And one of the things that I find interesting is that the clothing, it's Oasis-ready clothing. Yeah, dichotomy wear. Dichotomy wear. That once you plug in, the clothing helps to accentuate your character and the movements of your character so that it's not just your gloves. It's uh, subtle movements in your body that are also registered. Which actually is kind of a smart idea. Right, because then you don't have to put on a separate suit. Like, why wouldn't you just yeah, like no. get dichotomy wear pajamas and just lounge around <laughs> just all spend time. all your time in your pajamas? Yeah, and you get the little hole in the back so you can take a dump. Right, right, yeah. right, right. It's uh, good to go. It, <laughs> that's not quite where I was going with that, you know. But you're wearing your pajamas, and in the Oasis, it looks like a suit, and 
the way that the pajamas sort of fall on your arm's length, you know, you have a way that you wear clothing and how that clothing sort of hangs on you is its own sort of nuance. And to have clothing that mimics that, that can register with the Oasis, that's kind of cool. Yeah, the only thing you'd be missing out on would be the the haptics. But how often is that really having an effect on your day-to-day routine? I would imagine that the clothing would be less expensive, although not as accurate as the haptics. But the haptics was just like a giant body condom. And that's obviously not going to work if you need to like unplug and go to the rest or un- unplug and go pick up a burger or something, right? He never says anything about it, uh, simulating textures and getting punched or anything like that. It's really just about influencing the movement of his avatar. Right. So we're starting to see that a little bit now with wearable technology and the Internet of Things, IoT. When we talk about IoT, we're really talking about how can you integrate connectivity into everyday objects. And that might be sensors that provide feedback, like uh, Bluetooth beacons that have you know additional inputs that you can use. Uh, it could be your clock that's connected to the Internet that not only keeps super accurate time, but can, when you get up, tell you what the weather is like. It can tell that you're awake, can tell you you know, how much sleep you got and compare that to a larger database of people who are sleeping and potentially tell you if there are issues with your sleeping habits, et cetera, things like that. Oh, speaking of, I haven't told you about my new wearable that I just got. Can you hold on to that thought for like two minutes? Sorry, Gunters, but the get to the good part guys need to take a short break. But don't worry, they will be back soon. Keep scanning the Oasis for the next episode when your favorite Gunters finish chapter 31. Now, let's finish listening to that outro music. No. You're not talking about the book Armada. Oh, we're talking about 1984? Sure. No. Yes. But we could. Could. (coughs) All right, cough it out. (coughs) Yeah. Sorry. It's still in there. All right, you ready to hit it? Let's do this shit.